opiates, as soon as it like hit my system, it was like something clicked. A, a prayer really, and, a, and, and my hope that other families who are struggling with addiction, as I did, will find some glimmer of hope in the story. There needs to be a lot more awareness. And, you know, a lot of people are dying. Hey everyone, I hope you are doing well. We appreciate you choosing the Run the Race podcast where we uh, share some really hopefully inspiring faith and fitness stories. And uh, today, um, you know, this setup might sound something like a movie. Picture this, a father and son, their bond nearly destroyed, a mother desperate to save them both, and a family torn apart from within. Can Love Survive the Winter? That's the description for a new book written by a local doctor here in the West Georgia area. Uh, he and his son are my guests for this podcast. We're talking about uh, drug and alcohol addiction, how uh, faith plays a role in, in overcoming that. And, um, you know, the new book that this local surgeon has written, um, loosely based on the story of their family, the book is called The Gardens of Winter. It is a uh, novel, the first novel, by uh, Dr. James McGrory, who's an orthopedic surgeon here in Columbus, Georgia, where I am. And um, for his first novel, it's fantastic. I've, uh, you know, I'm not an avid reader. I'd like to be and, and spend more time, you know, to sit down and read. But I'm very busy with work and family and, and running. And so, uh, but, but sitting down, I've read more than 100 pages of it. I'm more than a third of the way there. It's called The Gardens of Winter, and it's excellently written. Uh, so I highly recommend it. And uh, we're going to hear more about that. You'll hear more about the real story coming up in the next few minutes on uh, this episode of Run the Race. Um, um, our guests, again, are Dr. James McGrory, who, again, this is a semi-autobiographical labor of love, his first novel. Uh, but his day job is an orthopedic surgeon at the Houston Clinic here in Columbus, Georgia, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta, a staff surgeon at Jack Houston Memorial Hospital in Phoenix City, Alabama, just across the river. Uh, he got his undergraduate education at the University of Alabama, so I think he says Roll Tide. And then he attended medical school at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, where he got his degree in 1994 and completed his orthopedic training at the uh, famous Mayo Clinic. He developed his expertise in total joint replacement of the hip and knee, also completed a fellowship in a spine surgery at the Texas Back Institute uh, a little more than a decade ago. And uh, Dr. McGrory has uh, actually taught for four years at the Navy Medical Center in Portsmouth, Virginia. Uh, his son, who is also, this is a double guest episode, so I got both of them on for the podcast. His son, Nick McGrory, is uh, now the CEO and co-owner of Otter House Recovery in uh, the Asheville, North Carolina area, which is where I'm from. Uh, but he, I guess, grew up here in Columbus, Georgia. And this is part, part on his bio online. This is what he says. He says, I honestly believe I was given one more shot at life solely to give back what I've learned in my recovery journey. My drug of choice was intravenous heroin, and my sobriety, my sobriety date is December 19th, 2016. So I've uh, been sober for uh, close to about seven years or so now. He said, I put my family through a living hell for five years before I finally came to a program similar to Otter House Recovery, where I grasped and was able to maintain my sobriety that I hold dearly 
to this day. So a uh, pretty amazing story by both of them. So, uh, you know, obviously he's turned his life around, but it was uh, really difficult to go through. And, and they, uh, the father and son both say that the faith was instrumental. A, a higher power was part of that healing as a family and from that addiction. And it continues to be something that they focus on. Um, but uh, it was something that, you know, the dad, Dr. McGorry talks about being angry and a natural response as a dad. How could you put us through this? Um, but uh, he has learned since uh, more about addiction being a disease and uh, not just a bad lifestyle decision. So maybe you know somebody that's going through addiction, maybe somebody in your family, or maybe you that are listening to this. So hopefully their stories are uh, inspiring and uh, you know educational, uh, as well as uh, you know entertaining as this book is. It is uh, definitely dealing with a very serious but important topic that we need to continue talking about. So I decided to have them both on for this episode of Run the Race. We have uh, Dr. Jay McGorry with us now on the podcast. Um, we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I know you're, you're a busy man, so I appreciate the time. Happy to help. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we're going to talk about uh, your new uh, novel, uh, talking about, uh, you know, loosely based on your family story, going through addiction, and, uh, you know, how, how faith is part of that, and Father's Day is coming up soon. So this is a, obviously, you know, a, a father-son affair that you're, you're talking about. But, you know, uh, first, um, as, as, as a surgeon that deals with uh, hips and joints and things, I, you and I were just talking about it off mic. I'm an avid endurance runner. So if I keep running as much as I do, am I going to, what other people have told me, you know, am I going to have these hip and knee replacements that I'm sure you do a lot of? Or No, there's actually no evidence that long distance running leads to joint replacements that I'm aware of. So you just keep on trucking. <laughs> good, You're good. good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, um, t- take me back a little bit to your family story. Okay. So you're, um, how many kids do you have? Uh, three, three kids. Okay. And your son, Nick is, is the oldest, the oldest. So, you know, you're going through life here in, in, uh, West Georgia, um, you know, uh, as a, as a family and, and he's in high school, uh, where did things kind of, um, where did things go off the tracks? I guess, essentially. Well, I think with Nick, there were two parallel issues. One is, what I would sort of loosely call mental health, and then the other is addiction, and I think they overlap significantly. Addiction really didn't come into play until he was about, he may have to correct me, but I'm gonna say age maybe 18, 19, he was involved in an altercation and he dislocated his shoulder, and one of my partners did a shoulder operation on him and prescribed hydrocodone for him, and we can get to that you know, later a bit, but uh, which is a common scenario how addiction begins, but um, but going farther back in time, um, you know, Nick had some, um, I guess I would say emotional and behavioral issues from a pretty young age. Um, so, you know, that began at a fairly young age and then addiction kind of piled onto that when he was 18 or 19. And then he was, now he's dealing with two parallel and related mental health problems at the same time. And, you know, as, as dad, um, you know, your job is to care for, protect your children, um, help raise them so they can be, you know, productive, independent people. Um, so, you know, and he's a teenager, you know, heading off towards college in the world, uh, you know, and you got this thrown into the bucket. How, how are you feeling as dad? Um, frustrated and disappointed. 
Um, I think that's natural. Um, one of the hardest lessons that I had to learn, and this comes out in the book, is that your kids are not necessarily going to be like you are. They're different, right? They're your offspring, but um, genes are like, you know, it's like rolling a thousand dice. You, it's all the same numbers, but you get a different sequence each time. So all your kids are different from themselves, they're different from you, but you naturally expect as a physician that you're gonna have a son who, from the time he's 13 years old, knows he wants to be a doctor and wants to make straight A's and is a clone of you. At least that's what I thought. So when you have a son who doesn't wind up like that, that was a tough lesson for me to learn, just in general. Um, but, you know, Nick would be the first to tell you that I was frustrated with him along the way, um, especially when addiction came into play. I, I didn't. I didn't think in a million years I'd ever have to confront that, and I didn't know what to do about it or what to think about it. So that was part of the problem was I didn't know how to even process what I, I was confronted with. Yeah, and I guess it's it can, it's a good thing that they're not like us, and, and I've heard people say, therapists say in the past that, you know, we, we as parents want them to check the boxes and, and check them in order and kind of, you know, kind of go in that traditional route, but a lot of times, maybe they'll skip a box or, or, or just not even check that box at all. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means there, it means there, it's a different route than we took and, uh, maybe a better route who, who knows. So from there, you know, how, um, you know, did, was it, um, was it very, um, I don't know, wouldn't I, even probably worse than stressful, but it was a very traumatic for the family going through what you went through with the addiction and mental health issues. Oh, it was extremely traumatic. Uh, the, the mental health part wasn't nearly so bad. I mean, my mother had emotional problems. She was diagnosed with bipolar. So we have a family history of some mental health issues. And, you know, Nick's mental health issues are really just kind of emotional and personality things that were kind of difficult and we had him evaluated by specialists and sort of you know kind of treated for that and cared for in that way and that that piece of it really kind of got better and stabilized so that really wasn't traumatic not really but the addiction part when that came into play I mean it was like a wrecking ball for our family um, his mom and I were just you know we didn't know what to do really. Um, and it was, it, it exacted a toll on everyone in the family. There's no question about it. If you're comfortable, you know, give us an example of when you say wrecking ball, you know, uh, whatever you're comfortable talking about, you know, what are maybe an example or some examples of what, what was happening that was changing the dynamic of the family? Well, I'll give you the most dramatic example, uh, an example that led us taking him to treatment. Uh, we knew that he was, had been using drugs following um, his um, shoulder surgery with the Vicodin. So there was already some using and we had confronted him about that and we were aware of it. Um, I guess just hoping that it wouldn't get any worse. I, I don't recall exactly what we went through in the earliest stages, but over Thanksgiving of probably 2017, I don't know exactly which year, um, I'll never forget, it was the Iron Bowl, the day of the Iron Bowl, and Nick was going to Auburn with some friends, the game was in Auburn, and he was going with some buddies to the game, 
and I was always already very worried about him because he had lost a bunch of weight and I just knew something wasn't right. But he took off with some friends and his mom and I stayed home and we were watching the game. And all of a sudden, in come his buddies carrying Nick or escorting him. Nick was nearly unconscious. Took him into the living room and laid him down and said, uh, he's not conscious, he won't wake up. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know whether to go to the ER or just come back here. Um, and he basically had nearly overdosed. Um, and then we, you know, once he kind of came, we could tell that he was basically okay. He was breathing and conscious, but he was clearly, you know, very sedated and very, you know, um, he was on something. And so um, it turned out he had been on three or four different substances all at one time. And that's when even Nick, when he came around the next day, acknowledged, you know, I have a problem and I don't know what to do about it. And he felt, you know, um, scared and, you know, a little helpless. And so that's when we sent him to rehab. But I mean, you know, his mom and I will never forget that night. Yeah. That was frightening. As a, as a surgeon, as, for, as your day job, you know, you know some of the medical aspects of things maybe the average person doesn't know. So when you see this, see him, you know, unconscious and, and overdosed, I mean, do you go into like medical mode or are you like 100% father mode? <laughs> wow, that's a tough one. Um, or it could be a mix. I would say probably more father than medical. The med- I mean, I, I knew you know, from taking his vital signs and looking at his respirations that he wasn't, you know, going into respiratory arrest like can happen with opioid overdose. I mean, I, I knew he was going to be okay and didn't need to go to the hospital. It wasn't that bad. Um, so I guess the medical side of me and his mom was not so sure at all. I mean, but so, but she trusted me and, you know, I knew that he was going to be okay in that moment. So really, it was more of a of a father thing, and you know it's interesting the dynamic, and it sort of comes out in my novel, um, the difference between how his mother viewed it and how I viewed it, because it was a very definite difference, and even in that moment, never mind just in general, but even in that moment, there was a very definite difference in how we viewed it. I mean, we were both terrified for him, and you know all those emotions, afraid and worried and anxious. But really, you know, her, her, her feelings, her primary feelings were, were um, worry and sadness and, you know, anxiety and, oh my gosh, my son, you know, is he going to be okay? And of course I had that, but, but I, I have to be honest, it was, it was overlain with, um, frustration, anger, um, disappointment, um, exasperation, because I knew he had been involved with drugs all along, just didn't know it was that bad. And, you know, um, that's a natural reaction for many parents, you know, it's just, how could you do this to me? Yeah. You know, and in looking back, uh, maybe that's a bit unfair, but that was an honest, that was my gut reaction. Yeah. At that time, and you know, maybe mom I was angry, and moms and dads listening to this, you know, may have had the same reaction, or may 
would have the same reaction in that scenario, you know, whether that's, you feel like that's fair or not, that's, you know, kind of a natural, like, like, oh, this is, you know, why did you make these decisions? So, but looking back now, I mean, we're talking, you know, if you fast forward to now, looking back, what did you learn about, you know, what was, um, I guess, what was needed at that time or what, how you changed maybe to be able to help the situation? Yeah, so I think at the time, you have, you know, remember at that moment in time, even though I'm a physician, I don't know anything about addiction or the nature of addiction or, you know, that, that it is a disease at some level. Um, and, you know, I didn't know anything about it. So for me, at that moment in time, addiction was nothing more than a lifestyle choice. It was a decision that you make to use drugs, a bad decision. Um, and nothing more. And so if it's just a bad decision, then the natural parental reaction to a bad decision is anger um, and frustration. How can you do this? You should know better, etc. Looking back now, I have a much fuller under understanding about the nature of addiction and the fact that in, in, to a large degree, it is a disease or a disease state. Um, and so knowing that, um, if I could go back in time, I think I would have handled the situation differently. Of course, we still would have sent him to rehab and all the rest of it, but I, I, I probably would have handled the situation a little bit better. I don't think I would have been any happier about it, but, but my ability to process what was going on was hampered by my lack of knowledge about addiction generally. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're coming up on Father's Day soon. So, you know, um, you know, was there um, a lot of uh, strain? I'm sure, you know, this was seven years ago or more um, on the relationship as father and son because obviously of all of this going on. And has there been kind of some healing and some some kind of uh, hard conversations since then? Oh, yeah. No, at the time it was a... You know, Nick would have to speak for himself on his perspective, but I know from my perspective, going through it in the early stages, you know, I was, you know, angry with him and uh, sort of resented him um, kind of, you know, and again, this is my perception perspective then, not now, resented him for sort of ruining our family. Um, we, you know, I worked hard and to create this you know, everything we had and, you know, we had this good family and, you know, it sounds harsh and I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to, to speak like this, but at that time I was angry with him and it, it just got to the point where, you know, because then he relapsed, right? So he went to treatment, then he relapsed uh, and then we had to send him, send him back to treatment. And again, at that time, still not really understanding what addiction's all about, I'm still in this, it's a lifestyle choice mode. And so I just, you know, every time he would relapse, right, I'd just get more and more upset with him. And it didn't get to the point where I um, renounced him as my son and said, you know, you're not a part of this family anymore and don't ever come around. It didn't get to that point, although it does for many parents. But I got darn near that for a while. But then uh, over time, the last time he was in treatment in um, in eastern uh, Georgia, forget the place, but anyway, he was in a treatment there, and they had a parents' weekend where the parents came out, 
And I remember that was really a turning point for me because I had already begun to learn more and more about addiction and I was coming around and understanding it better and being a little bit more understanding about it. And they had a, a, a meeting with the parents where they would make amends. And so when they would, all the, you know, the addicts and alcoholics in the facility had to you know, write a letter, basically a, a letter of apology, whatever you want to call it. It's called making amends and treatment. But, and the, all the parents were in the room and they would literally hand out a Kleenex box to each set of parents. And I'm like, okay, I guess everybody's gonna cry. And sure enough, you know, when the, when the kids start, you know, going through the laundry list of I'm sorry about this and how this hurt you and all that, I mean, there's not a dry eye in the place. Husband, I mean, you know, father, mother, everyone, including me. Yeah. I'm not usually much of a crier. <laughs> but it was, it was, no, it was a turning point because that was the first time that I could really see, and Nick was crying, that it, it upset him that he upset us. And that was really the first time for me that I think the ship turned. And then since that time, you know, he's just gone on to, he's remained, you know, clean for going on seven, nearly eight years now. And uh, he started his own um, sober living uh, business in Asheville, North Carolina, Otter House Recovery, uh, where he helps other young men struggling with addiction. And so, you know, he's just, I've just become more and more proud of him. Absolutely. As time has gone on, and as a result, our relationship is as strong as it's ever been. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm sure that's for you. I mean, it's it's been a long, bumpy, windy road to get there. Yes. But uh, but I mean, the, things don't happen in a linear, straight line. No, they do not. And I'm sure from somebody, you know, I mean, I, I my dad was a doctor. He was a pediatrician, and I, you know, I, um, and and I, I'm, I've never worked in the medical field, but I, with medicine, I guess there's like there's absolutes, I guess, and there's okay. This is if this happens, this is going to happen, and in life. It doesn't really necessarily work like that, right? No, <laughs> no, it absolutely does not. And even in medicine, it doesn't. Medicine isn't an exact science, so that's for sure. But life is even, even less so. And you know, you don't know what God has in store for you, what your path is going to be. There's that's no question about that. And that was certainly the case with um, Nick and me. But I'm just, you know, relieved and and delighted that things have turned out the way they have yeah because i sure am proud of them yeah now and you know talked about you know god and in church and growing up you know methodist or or whatever you know y'all attended church uh was that a part of the process too because i know with addiction programs there's you know um there's you know um nick had told us about this about the the spiritual aspect of it whether you're you know a christian or not um did that play a role with with you and your family Oh, there's no question about it. Um, not only do alcoholics and addicts have to confront their addiction and their disease and, and how they cope with it, and not only do, just like they have to very often come to understand that it takes a higher power um, for them to reach um, sobriety, families and friends, of, family members and friends of addicts and alcoholics are traumatized as well and often feel helpless. And there's an organization called Al-Anon for those. And so his mother and I attended um, for about a year, once a week attended a local Al-Anon meeting. And it's literally a meeting of 
fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children of alcoholics and addicts who are, you know, traumatized by the addict and alcoholic in their life. And it's almost exactly like an AA meeting. They have a book and a manual. You begin the meeting with a serenity prayer about, you know, understanding what you can't change and having the courage to change the things you can and the wisdom to know the difference. Same as in AA. And you really need, and just like they do, you really need a higher power. And for me, it's the Lord and Jesus Christ, because I'm a Christian, that's my higher power. And it may be something else for other people. But you realize that you absolutely need that to get through. You, you just, you can't, I couldn't do it on my own. There's no doubt about it. So that was an integral part of, of our healing as a family. Yeah. And, you know, telling your story and being open about it, which can be a scary proposition, is can be part of the process, too. It can be part of the healing. And you wrote a novel that came out a few months ago, The Gardens of Winter, um, your your first novel. Um, and it's not a autobiography, but it's, I guess, based in part on your family's, you know, uh, this battle with addiction and coming on the other side of it. Um, so why why did you decide to write a book? I mean, because I mean, sometimes it's painful to go through and, and kind of unearth some of this stuff. Well, I had always wanted to write a novel. That had always been a life goal of mine. Um, and, you know, I studied English literature in college, and I was always sort of into creative writing, and it was, I knew I was going to be a doctor, but I always wanted, just as something to, to say that I did, to write a novel. So I had toyed with other kinds of books and, and never really finished one, and then it just kind of hit me after this entire experience with Nick that this would be an opportunity for me to get it all out on paper in book form. And um, the first decision I had to make was whether to write a memoir about our exact situation um, or, or not. And I just wasn't comfortable at the time that I wanted, to be that, wanted it to be that personal. I wasn't sure Nick would be comfortable with that. Wasn't sure his mother would be comfortable with that. Um, and so I said, well, I've always talked about writing a novel. I'll just write a fictional story about a doctor's family dealing with an addicted uh, son. So the characters, it's a different town, it's a different setting. The father in the story is a physician, um, but the characters are different. The, the young man in the story, in the novel, struggling with addiction is not really Nick. They're different interests and personalities. So it really isn't our story. And even for, for anyone who reads the novel to the end, we'll, we'll see that there are some things that are clearly not our story. Uh, in terms of how things sort of wind up. But, but it's still, the, po the point is, it's still a story about a family struggling to deal with this monster called addiction and how they grapple with it and how really every person in the story is sort of waging their own war with, with this problem in terms of how it affects them individually. The mother the, has her perspective and the father does and, and the son and, and his siblings. So... Um, but it's, it's, it is, I mean, at the end of the day, it is our story. Just yeah. slightly kind of tweaked a little bit. Tweaked a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've read, um, part of it and it, it's very well written. It's, it's very, um, I, I don't entertaining, but also kind of, kind of grabs a hold of you in terms of the, the, uh, the, the family aspect of it and kind of the twists and turns. Do what do you hope people get from, not only the book, but also your story, you know, you and Nick and your family. And, and uh, what do you hope when people hear about it, 
that that they learn or glean from it? Well, the book and there's a there's an afterword at the end where I actually do talk about our family at the very very end and kind of lay out the basis for the novel. Um, and in that, I say that you know the book was it was cathartic for me personally. It was an intensely personal experience, but it's also a, a prayer, really, and, a, and, and my hope that other families who are struggling with addiction, as I did, will find some glimmer of hope in the story and, and understand that it's not hopeless. Um, you can heal. Um, it takes a few steps to get there, um, but, but it is possible. Um, and so really it's just meant to be a beacon of hope for people who, who feel lost and, and hopeless, as many do. Yeah. And, you know, you were saying earlier about how you learn, have learned, especially when it was, when you were kind of going through it and sending Nick off to treatment about addiction. Did you find that there's maybe a, a, quite a few misconceptions about addiction and what people are going through. I mean, you talked a little bit about that before, about it being a, a, a lifestyle choice versus a disease. What are some of the misconceptions that you, you've you learned as a, as a dad, as a physician, as a you know somebody um, with a son that was an addict through this? Well, I think you, you, you really touched on it. It is, um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it is, at some level, it is a choice, right? I mean, you choose to drink, you choose to take a drug. Um, and even Nick would tell you, and other addicts and alcoholics will tell you that they do have to take responsibility for their actions. They, they don't shift blame to anyone else but themselves. Um, but clearly addiction has a genetic component and, a, and th there is a disease component to it. And so I learned an awful lot about that along the way. There, um, there are abnormalities in the frontal cortex that sometimes never get completely resolved. But while uh, someone's going through addiction, that's completely distorted, which has to do with not only personality, but decision-making, uh, judgment, you know, all those things are affected. Um, and, and I could go on, it's a whole separate talk about the um, pathologic basis for addiction, but it's very, very real. And you can read about it, but it's, um, but it's it's it is a little bit of both. To be clear, it's not like getting diabetes where you just you know automatically you're an addict or an alcoholic. You do have choice, and you certainly have choice in healing and getting better. Just like you have to choose to go to the doctor and choose to be treated for your hypertension and not ignore it, you have to choose to seek treatment for addiction. No one can do it for you. Um, and, um, but those are just some of the things that I've learned along the way among many others. Yeah. And, you know, part of your job at Houston clinic, you, you know, do spine surgeries, do hip and knee replacements, you know, going through this whole process, which is, you know, different than what you do for a living, but it is kind of medically and psychologically, you know, deals with, uh, you know, the body. Does it, has it changed you and your mindset at, even as a physician about, um, just what people are going through? Well, sure. I mean, yes. It. Well, first of all, I just understand addiction generally better. Um, I can tell you one way in which it's affected me as a physician, and, and, and I've sort of preached this to colleagues since having gone through this experience, and this comes out in the book a little bit as well, 
is that we as physicians have historically done a pretty poor job at managing um, pain medication usage in our patients. Um, in the uh, late 1990s, we were taught in our training that uh, we were doing a poor job at managing pain and we needed to be doing a better job basically prescribing more pain medication for patients and not being so afraid that they would become addicted to it. Pain was, was called the fifth vital sign, actually, and it was in sort of a part of our training. Well, this led to a long period of overprescribing by doctors, which sort of in many ways contributed to the opioid crisis, quite honestly. And now that, that tide has turned and we've begun to realize that, no, that's wrong. Uh, and, um, you know, classic example, you know, Nick, he was a teenager, he had shoulder surgery, he was prescribed hydrocodone, um, which can be addictive. Um, you know, I don't prescribe uh, opioid narcotics uh, for surgical patients other than for surgeries that are known to be associated with really bad pain. Um, I'm just more careful about it, I'll just say it that way, yeah. and more cautious about it, and less liberal with prescribing. And I think doctors are starting to get that message, fortunately. Yeah. I, know, I think it's important that we talk about it, that we talk yes. about addiction, talk about mental health, talk about opioids, and because and, uh, some people know that, okay, hey, I can't take opioids because it will you know, because I have this kind of maybe addictive personality. Some people just don't know. And when you're 17, 18 years old, you have a injury from football or, or soccer or whatever else. And you start take, or you have an accident. Um, you start taking these and it, who knows what it can lead to, right? You just don't know. Yeah. You really, really don't know. Sometimes, you know, if you've got a broken arm or broken leg, you know, you might need morphine in an emergency room. I mean, there are times where you just need the pain medication because you're just hurting that badly. But, but I do think that we prescribe it more often than we need to in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jay McGrory. I uh, appreciate your time and uh, talking to you and Nick. It's been great. Looking forward to, to finishing the book and uh, let, let for, folks uh, know more about it. So thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Nick, uh, tell me about, um, you know, how you know we got to where we are now in terms of you know you're now working in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, you know leading a, a treatment facility there. Um, kind of take me back in time a little bit to your story and and uh, how you got to where you're at now. In a bird's eye view, quick elevator pitch summary. I mean, grew up in Columbus, um, played sports. Pretty normal across the board. Um, had shoulder surgery and started taking uh, pain pills. And until that point, um, I didn't really ever have any sort of like urge or drive to like do anything like consistently, like um, besides just, you know, like drinking or, you know, occasionally like smoking weed or anything like that. And then opiates, as soon as it like hit my system, it was like something clicked. Um, and it didn't really affect me until I tried something stronger um, afterwards, like a stronger opiate, like a different kind of pain pill. Um, and then pretty much it was like, and what I know a lot of back end stuff now that from like a, medical side 
of what kind of happens. There's like a threshold that if you cross it, it's it's like a phrase we use, like once you um, become a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber. Mm. Um, there's like certain parts of your brain chemistry that become like irreversible with like certain things. So went to college, um, went to treatment, went to University of Alabama, then went to treatment. Um, and was pretty much in and out of treatment facilities for a couple of years. Um, wound up in South Florida. Um, wound up Colorado, New Mexico, Minnesota, a um, little bit of everywhere. And I progressively, you know, with each place that I went to, like the hardest thing for me was believing that like I couldn't just drink. Um, I was told that out of the get-go, like, you can't do anything. If you're an addict, alcoholic, same thing. You can't do anything successfully the rest of your life. And for anybody that's even remotely, I mean, I was like 19, 20, 21, 22. It's like a tough pill to swallow. Um, and so I tried, you know, they were like, if you don't feel that way, um, you know, the rest of this program isn't really going to help you. People that were more old school, straightforward were like, you know, an old saying was like, you're wasting your high time, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that used to be the case. That's how most people before like fentanyl came around. There's a lot more people that got sober by trial and error not listening to suggestions and then figuring it out the hard way themselves. Um, and people can't really do that anymore with fentanyl, um, unfortunately. But So I ended up getting sober uh, at 22. Um, huge reason for that was I had tried everything already and I paid attention enough to know kind of like some common denominators of what guys that I met that had like a lot of time or had what I wanted um, and I would ask them a lot of questions like how did you do it how'd you do it and they would all say a lot of the same things um, and it took me trying everything my way pretty much multiple times and not having anywhere to go um, boundaries with family and a little bit of like, I mean, I've been desperate at different times before, but it was just a combination of all those things and then going to a facility um, and then wound up in Asheville. And because I tried to get sober in Atlanta, not in a facility, and it was tough because it was, I was 22 and there's no community around me. It was just, you know. No support system. No support system, you know, just doing things on my own, trying to work, you know, seeing guys my age, like the little tags on their jackets, you know, going out to the bars, like, and I'm, you know, having to force myself to go home and not put myself in those situations. And it's just it's hard. Yeah. Um, it's a million times easier when you're surrounded by other people that are all 
doing the same thing you're doing. Um, and that's the same with anything. Um, you know, like if you're in, you know, college and you're in pre-med and all the people you're around are, you know, only going to Greek events and all this stuff and they're not like heavy into school and college, it's a lot harder to get yourself to stay focused and do that kind of stuff if you're not also around other people that are also on whatever track you're on. Um, so same thing with anything. So got sober in Asheville, went to sober living program there. Um, I was there for like six, seven months, moved out to Oregon. Um, moved out to Oregon with the guy who founded the place that I was at. Um, we were going to start another one there. Didn't work out there. Came back to Asheville. Um, and in short, started a program that I started, Otter House. That was February of 2018. Um, my sobriety date is December uh, 19 of 2016. Um, and I've been doing that pretty much until from then until now, and then we're about to open. Um, another facility there in Asheville and then the hope is long term hopefully within like a year 18 months opening something in Columbus great something that's needed and going back to something you had mentioned about um, having shoulder surgery which is kind of like the something I mean you know you hear a lot about that you know I don't know was it was it a sports injury yeah so I played sports um, football basketball baseball wrestling um, worked out all the time and I injured it working out like six months prior to that um, and uh, I ended up getting in a fight and dislocating it and then a bunch of people a bunch of drunk people trying to put it back in place at a party made it a million times worse um, and yeah my entire left shoulder is held together but like eight anchors, I think, <laughs> or something like that. Do, um, do, do you think that maybe, you know, a lot of people maybe have a similar story where, you know, maybe you don't, don't intend to be a oh, drug yeah. addict and then these pain pills kind of grab a hold of you and, you know. That's about one and because a lot like historically um, our program was male only and mostly like, um, like 18 to 35 year olds and most of them grew up similar to me um, and any guy that played sports um, at all that was in recovery almost all of us had the exact same story of had shoulder surgery or had knee surgery or something um, and then started taking opiates and then addiction followed from that hmm. um, and you know, there's plenty of, I'd tried like other substances before then, um, but certain substances uh, click almost with somebody. Um, certain people, they drink and that feeling that they love that they get from drinking, they find that and it does everything they need for them. They never need to find anything else. Like me, like drinking never did that. Um, 
a lot of things never did that. It was uh, in a similar, it just depends on like your brain chemistry. Um, so there's a lot of people who opiates um, do that. And it's like a feeling that you can't really describe. There's a reason why. Um, but yeah, it's very common. Opiates like prescription pain medicine um, being pushed and prescribed. I mean, there's that whole Hulu dope sick mm -hmm. with uh, Purdue Pharma and all that. Um, so it's a whole thing for sure. And, you know, kind of looking back at, you know, we're talking, you know, eight, nine years ago, um, kind of what you went through, but also what your family went through, your, your parents or other people that loved you and cared for you. What was, looking back at that, what was that like in terms of what, not only you were putting yourself through, but putting other folks, you know, were having, because it's a, a family affair, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the only diseases that affects the entire family for the duration of it. And it's also one of the only diseases that um, people can essentially have like two lives in one, like it can negatively impact your entire family while it's being treated and while it's not, while you're not like actually addressing core issues and getting past it. And everyone that I've ever met that's gotten on the other side of it ends up being one of the largest assets to their family. Because um, in order to get there, you have to do a lot of self-work and a lot of, you know, self-reflection it almost always requires um, trying to get in touch with some sort of like higher power of your understanding so all those people end up becoming fairly like spiritual in their own regards um, and you know it's it's not easy um, but you know when you're in it you are because they talk about at least from like addiction substance use like selfishness self-centeredness is like um, they believe to be like the root of most of the problems there's a lot of that um, like humans are selfish by design to survive like from the time you're a baby like you need things you need to find things to survive you know you need to cry and scream to get what you need and so most humans um, have pretty large percentage of their day they're thinking about themselves naturally that's normal and then people in addiction due to you know brain chemistry things that they didn't get when they were younger traumatic events all sorts of stuff like that they think about themselves more frequently throughout the day it's like a decent percent more um, and working on alleviating that um, because even once traumatic events are no longer occurring, the brain still tells itself, like, we need more to protect ourselves. We need more. We're not going to get this, so we need to get it, like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so when you're in it, you don't think about anything or anybody but yourself. Um, you occasionally do. I know I occasionally would when I would be coming out of it or I'd feel remorseful, but ultimately there was still one goal, and it was how do I keep this going? in some form or fashion. Um, and that's why it's really tough a lot of times when people get sober and come out of it and are in treatment, you know, processing like and hearing from the family like how it affected them, like impact letters and things like that. And it's a lot. Um, 
and you know it's very difficult for the individual to heal when the other family isn't also addressing stuff and working on themselves as well um you know it's it affects family and when one person starts to recover it's important that the other people within the family unit are also taking the suggestions of how to heal themselves um and you know i think that a lot of people um don't realize how much it impacts you know on both sides like negatively with family members and then also um by a family member getting better most i mean addicts and alcoholics and people with any sort of like mental health like anything um that recover and get better i don't know any person that has like a larger like ripple effect of helping people than people in recovery um because you know somebody hears about somebody getting better and that's that's the thing you never know how many people you're going to impact yeah you know somebody hears that so and so got sober or you know, they didn't know what was going on with them, but they run into them and they're doing great. And they have a conversation with them about, yeah, I mean, it was just simple. I just, you know, needed to address this and take my meds or, yeah, I just had to go to treatment. I had to do this. And then that person, you never know if that was the seed that caused them to work on their own stuff. And then because of that, they have a friend or, you know, they're, wife or husband or their future kids and you know it's just it affects a lot of things um very few people currently don't have some sort of like unaddressed like you know anxiety mental health depression anything trauma trauma something you know from your past that you haven't i mean there's been a lot of traumatic experiences in the world in the united states in our generation yeah Um, there was a large gap or there wasn't a whole lot. And then before then there was a lot, you know, with like world war two, world war one, um, great depression. And then there's kind of a, a lull. Um, and so a lot of that stuff impacts people and families and economy and it all, it's, it doesn't just, you know, you only sweep so much under the rug and just keep things moving. So. And it's, I mean, I know it can be very healing to kind of be vulnerable and tell your story. And, and, but that can be difficult too, because, you know, there's whatever pride, shame, whatever that goes along with that. And you know, your, your dad wrote a book, you know, based in part on your family's experience through this, uh, it being a novel, so different names and different kinds of people. But um, what, you know, when, you're, when your dad approached you about writing this book or uh, talked to you about, okay, this is, hey, we're going to, our family story is going to be kind of in there in some capacity. What was your reaction? Or when you, when you read parts of the book, what's your reaction? I mean, I was all about it, um, especially uh, in Columbus. Um, I mean, I work with families from, you know, different, you know, not Columbus, but different states version of like Columbus relative to like their big like capital city. Um, And I think Columbus is just now starting, they're way behind 
the rest of a lot. I mean, even like small, like rural cities are like in North Carolina, Texas, like um, there needs to be a lot more awareness. And, you know, a lot of people are dying. And unfortunately, same kind of concept like with, you know, government, anything like that, like until, you know, people pass that, you know, are part of like influential groups to like start talking about stuff, you know, until that happens, usually things don't get spoken about. So I'm always an advocate for awareness, um, stigma, I mean, overdose, uh, drug alcohol related deaths in the past 20 years have killed more US citizens than all of World War 1, World War 2, Vietnam, Korean War, Afghanistan combined. Um and, you know, people don't talk about it. Yeah. And now you you uh, uh, you know, we're on the receiving end of the treatment. Now you get to be on the kind of the other side, like having gone through it, you can kind mm -hmm. of speak to that, you know, differently than somebody who hasn't gone through an addiction themselves. And so the place is called Otter House. Is there a reason for the name Otter House? Um, <laughs> in short, uh, the house that um, the first program house, it was on the mountain um, just outside of Asheville in Fairview. Nothing was left in the house except like some furniture, like when we bought it. And I was on FaceTime with my mom and she had been through the house. I hadn't been through it yet. And it was cold and it was dark, like way up, like on the mountain. And it's like a big house and open a door. And I was like, I was like, do you remember what's in this room? She's like, no. And I lean in and I, looking for the light switch and I cut the light switch on and like right in front of my face is an otter and I like cut the light off hit my head on the little shelf <laughs> my dog Snoop comes running past me and starts like attacking this thing on the ground and I cut the light on I'm like trying to pull him off of it and then I hear like a clunk and it was a, a taxidermed otter like perfectly taxidermed otter that was like right at eye level and I called my mom back because the phone like hung up because I dropped it and I was like, so did you know there's an otter in here? She's like, I didn't see an otter. And then I called my buddy whose house it was. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that thing. He was like, you can keep it if you want. And my mom was like, oh, why don't you just call it the otter house? And I was like, I was like, I don't know. That doesn't sound, that doesn't make any sense. And then uh, my buddy Kevin said, well, just Google like symbolism, you know, symbolic, whatever with otters. And there's a lot of things about like transitions and like brotherhood and like healing and all sorts of stuff like that. So maybe not uh, a coincidence. Right. I drew a little stick figure logo of it. And then my mom drew up like one that looked really cool. And then it was, it was Otter House. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And you were talking earlier about kind of the, the spiritual aspect kind of that, that can't help to be a part of this you know, whether people are believers or not, or, you know, so for you, you know, whether you, I mean, I'm not sure if you grew up in church, but like, how, how did, how was that part of the process for not only you, but your family as well through this whole addiction and, and post addiction? Um, I'll say that most people that uh, have addiction, substance use, alcohol um, use issues and or mental health issues um, struggle with anything higher power related, God, um, 
and it's usually three things. It's usually A, they grew up in a completely like atheist household, or they grew up in a very, very like hardcore religious household, um, or um, they had some unfortunate events happen that caused them to like question or doubt. Um, you know, like traumatic, like loss of, you know, mom, loss of somebody, you know. Um, and most people, uh, if they're going anywhere to try and get better, um, to heal or anything like that, um, most people that are addicts, alcoholics, um, uh, co-occurring issues, mental health, um, do not like to be told what to do at all. Um, and so uh, if you go to facilities or programs that try and force feed you information and stuff, um, it doesn't usually work very well. That's why like the top end facilities in the country and around the world, um, they understand that and know that and they design everything in a way that's like easier to, to take in and understand that like attraction rather than promotion is always the way to go. Um, and over time, most people, um, A, first and foremost, like one of my sponsees most like doesn't believe in God or anything at all, um, but he has found some sort of spiritual connection um, in his own way, um, he's recovered and he was, he probably went to more psych hospitals in Florida than anybody else in the state of Florida. <laughs> um, made amends with multiple security guards at hospitals. Now he has a wife, kids, manages wow. like Hilton hotels. Um, and there's plenty of people that never find religion. There's a lot of people that um, struggle with it at first and then it takes a while um, for anybody that's like new and is not any person that's like really skeptical just by nature um, to find like their home spiritually. Um, I have a lot of friends who are like, I'm never going to church. And then a couple years in, uh, you know, they find one that they like and and so my point is, is that it takes time and you can't force it on anybody. Um, trying to force that on people usually delays the process. And so what I found is um, the attraction rather than promotion, like letting people see it in action, um, interacting with people and letting them ask the questions like, how are you so happy? And then you don't give all the answers, you know, um, but you have to have people stay curious about it. Yeah. Um, and that's tough. I can imagine, and I know from friends and family, like I know what will help a lot, um, but I also know that I can't help. Um, you know, it's like family, generally speaking, there's too much bias involved for family to help other family. It takes other people outside of it. Um, a neutral party instead, right. of, instead of trying to shove a puzzle piece that doesn't fit and uh, I mean I think a lot of times we figure out as parents or as sons and daughters that like it's up to that person to make that decision like you can't and the more you try to push for a decision to be made almost like it works 
opposite direction, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it has to be a, a choice by that person going through the, the, the darkness, I guess. Exactly. And I think, well, I know the most helpful piece for um, family members to be able to comfortably accept that and work with that is talking with other family members who have dealt with or are going through the exact same thing. Um, because then you're speaking their same language. Yeah. You know, my son's not doing this, like, you know, and someone's like, oh, he's not doing this? Like, you know, welcome to the club. Like, and they can just speak openly about it. And it's like you're able to communicate with people without having to worry about what somebody's going to think or whatever. Um, and there's plenty of like groups and there's different, um, all sorts of things um, that, you know, hopefully, um, over time and the more awareness there is, the more groups and, you know, not just in person, but online, there's forums, there's all sorts of stuff, podcasts. Um, it's better to find people you can relate to in a lot of ways, no different than people that are ex-military do really well with people that have also experienced traumatic events, you know, and deployment. Um, PTSD. From right. No you know, because I have a lot of friends that are military and nobody can understand or relate more than somebody else who's been there. Yeah. Um, so same thing with a family member who has a family member struggling. They will not find comfort or peace with talking about it with anybody nearly as much as they will with somebody else whose kid or brother or wife or husband is going through the same thing. Yeah. There's like a weird sense of like, it's like, you're not my family, but I feel way more comfortable talking to you than anybody else for yeah. some reason. Yeah, yeah. The, the people that are professional, so yeah. Right. Cool. All right, well, thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Next time uh, I'm in Asheville, I'll come uh, see the Otter House. Is, is, is the Otter still there? The Otter is not there. My dog had finally found it. Um, <laughs> he was obsessed with that thing. Everywhere we hit it, he would, yeah. he would go and hide it. Um, but yeah, it is not there anymore, but there are otters in Asheville. <laughs> A few of them. A few of them. Again, you can check out uh, the story, uh, again, that's loosely based on the family, uh, Dr. J and Nick McGrory. It's called The Gardens of Winter. And uh, in the back, they've got, you know, the, the, the true story, how, how it's turned out uh, for their family so far. And uh, that sober living program that he leads, Otter House, in uh, the uh, mountains of Western North Carolina, it's designed to be a safe and supportive environment where young men struggling with substance abuse can focus on developing a strong foundation for long-term sobriety. They have an experienced staff. They, it's firmly rooted in the 12 steps of recovery. And they, uh, they get down to the root issues when it comes to drug or an alcohol addiction. They develop some coping strategies, some new skills. And uh, the goal is for, uh, for people there to live a happy, joyous, and free life in newfound sobriety. And they, uh, they do a lot of solo and group activities and uh, just try to, trying to facilitate that recovery from substance use disorders. So it's nothing that they're trying to force but it's just kind of uh, meeting people where they're at. And uh, there are a lot of uh, places like this. There's Teen Challenge here in town that helps folks 
through this. And there's a lot of different kinds of places all over the nation, some top end places. And so, uh, you know, I think there needs to be more of that. And uh, so uh, there is help out there. It's not hopeless, like Dr. Jay Mergori had said. And uh, I've actually talked to some uh, other uh, recovering or former addicts uh, from drug and alcohol on uh, the Run the Race podcast over the last several years. In fact, last July, I talked to Blake Russell. That's episode 113. You can check it out. He's an ex-drug dealer and also was a former baseball star who followed God's call into ministry. That's after serving almost a decade behind bars in jail. And then in 2021, I had uh, several uh, friends of mine who have some amazing stories. Uh, One is episode 57, all the way back, uh, talked to a chaplain, Neil Richardson. Uh, He was a jail chaplain for a long time, but he he went from cocaine and dealing that drug and using it a lot and storing it in the freezer and stuff, uh, from cocaine to Christ to being a chaplain. So really has a mesmerizing story. And then also last year, episode 80 of Run the Race, you can check that out. It's with Brandon McKenzie. He, he t- help, helps us to figure out how do we pray. He was an addict that's turned into an evangelist, now leading a local house of prayer. So there's some other episodes to check out uh, that deal with drug addiction because it really kind of can grab a hold of people, uh, you know, young or old, and it can really, uh, you know, affect the whole family. And uh, and the family needs to get help as well. So that, that's an important lesson, I think, from listening to this podcast and, and kind of looking to God uh, when it comes to uh, needing that strength to get through as mom, dad, sister, brother, or as the addict yourself, you know, God can meet you where you are at. Closing now this episode in prayer, dear God, I just thank you for this opportunity to talk about this important subject. And Lord God, that you know uh, that that all the you know the the men and women that are out there, they're all your children, and that you love them no matter what they've done, no matter the, the sins that you can and will forgive them if they ask. And uh, Lord God, we just um, thank you for the power of healing that you can bring through, um, you know, uh, facilities, uh, through programs, um, uh, through places like Otter House, that God, that you can use those to heal families, to heal addicts, to help bring them out of that so they can have a life that uh, of joy that you want them to have. And Lord God, just help us to, to help other people around us, coworkers, friends, family members who are struggling with uh, those those addictions, and that we not turn our back on them, but God, that we uh, work alongside you in helping them to uh, overcome those challenges and those obstacles in life. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thank you so much again for listening. I know there's a lot of different podcast choices out there. We've got some exciting things coming up. I'm going to talk to a, a very well-known local pastor coming up leading into Father's Day. And because uh, he has uh, kind of been handed the, the baton, uh, the legacy of faith from his dad, a longtime pastor uh, at uh, a local mega church. And so uh, looking forward to that conversation with him. And I uh, got some great stuff about running and cycling coming up, some, uh, some big efforts by some folks and uh, giving you some tips on uh, how to uh, you know, be fit, especially in these hot summer months. So until next time, God bless.